Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right. Well, here we go with another podcast episode where I get the chance to talk with another accessibility practitioner. And today I am speaking with Jamie Knight. Hello, Jamie. How are you today? Hello. I'm good. Thanks. Yourself? I'm really good. And I'm talking from my home office on Vashon Island, which is near Blink's headquarters in Seattle, Washington. Where are you talking to us from? Uh, I'm talking to you from my half-built lounge. It's a bit like a TV set. You don't want to see what's on the other side of the camera. Um, in sunny Romford, just outside London. It might, might not actually be that sunny. It's probably wet and miserable outside. I've not looked. It's safer not to look. But um, yeah, that's where I'm from today. Well, did you say Rumford? I'm not familiar with that. Um, is that a, a, a suburb of the London metropolitan area? Okay, so technically it's Greater London. We're a London borough, but we're kind of a small town on, well, large town on the outside of London that London kind of came out to meet. So a lot of people in Romford remember when it was part of Essex, but now it's part of London. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of on the border, right on the edge of London. Um, it's like medium medium to large sized town, but close enough to the city that I can get there when I need to. It's a good compromise. Well, uh, thanks for being here. Um, I, I always enjoy the opportunity to have uh, international visitors to this podcast, so we get a lot of different perspectives uh, from around the world. Uh, uh, like usual on this uh, program, uh, best place to start is if you could talk a little bit about the work that you're doing right now. So I'm actually in the middle of a transition at the moment, which is quite interesting. So back in May, I finished just shy of 11 years with the BBC, um, doing accessibility and research and stuff like that. Um, and now I'm kind of rebuilding my life. I say that I'm uh, building it around play and adventure. So play is things like events and workshops and podcasting and all that sort of stuff, but also Lego and gaming and game testing, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the adventures are the, the bike rides, um, but also, you know, traveling different places and doing different things and meeting interesting people and all sorts of stuff. So I'm sort of doing a lot of different things. Um, I'm running workshops for various organizations that I know. Um, I found myself with a slightly niche thing of doing like, I don't know how to put it, I don't know how to put it, a friendly phone call with lots of heads of accessibility. So various universities and broadcasters and other people that I know I seem to end up on the phone chatting to them about accessibility quite often. Um, so doing stuff like that. Uh, and then that's kind of like one side of my life. Uh, and then the other side of my life um, is I look after a piece of software for catching financial crime. So a bit of a different thing, but um, uh, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of mine, um, Wookie, who some people will know from CSUN, he supported me at CSUN a few years ago. Um, he's a money laundering reporting officer. And uh, many years ago, we were building a kit car together. And he said something along the lines of all of the transaction monitoring software is rubbish. And I had the worst thought a developer can ever have and went, hmm, that doesn't sound too tricky. Uh, so four years later, um, and we have a transaction monitoring platform that we look after and we look after about $10 billion worth of payments a day. Um, but that's my side gig. 
which I know sounds a bit weird, like the financial crime detection tool. That's my side project. The main thing I'm doing is the accessibility stuff. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Uh, Lion's mostly just doing antelope management, making sure I don't get eaten by antelope, chasing away any deer, you know, that sort of stuff. Good snuggles. Well, uh, it, well I'd like to uh, hear about your work uh, at the BBC that you've uh, moved away from. But uh, one of the ways that I usually like to uh, operate is to kind of go back in time and find out when you first uh, when oh, accessibility oh, became oh, relevant to uh, to you and thinking about it as a profession, we can kind of work back uh, yeah. up to the present day. So uh, where did it start for you? Time travel effect. Um, so I had a slightly odd uh, start on the whole internet thing in that when I was a fairly young child, nine or ten, um, I didn't really go outside much and do outside things. I like mountain biking, which is something I still do, which... I'll come on to in a bit is actually a bit strange, but um, I didn't do a paper round. I didn't do a, a retail shop. I built websites. And in my mind, built websites meant I designed them too. So from about nine through to about 17, 18, um, I was designing and building websites essentially for pocket money and for friends and, and building different things. Um, I got onto a, 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 a forum called Boag World when I was a teenager. And um, in my later teenage years, I was homeless. And um, I basically just was picking up work off of Boag World. So I would do bits of design for people, bits of development, making things. So I did that for, gosh, from about nine to 21. So about 12 years of just making things and experimenting and, and doing stuff like that. Um, and then I got offered a, a, a role up in London. So I, I was getting ready to move to London, uh, but the role wasn't going to start for three or four months. Um, so I was kind of looking around at what to do in the meantime and a, a friend of mine, Ian Pouncey, was at the BBC and said, hey, you should think about coming to the BBC, you know, just three months to a year, just, you know, get yourself settled in London, people you know are nearby, you'll probably find it quite interesting and uh, BBC Radio and Music have this like prototyping job going, um, you know, why don't you have a look? So I applied for it and um, Ian being the, the gentleman that he was, he, he, he took a taxi from the office to come and collect me from the station because it was about my fourth time living, moving to London, like traveling to London um, from, from down south in the UK because uh, I'm from Somerset where we all talk like pirates, um, which is great actually. My dad, when he starts talking to other people from Somerset, he sounds more and more and more like a pirate. And then when he's not talking to other people from Somerset, he sounds less and less and less like a pirate, which is kind of entertaining. Um, so yeah, so Ian came and picked me up from the station. I went and did the interview. Um, I'd never really done an interview for development stuff before. Um, so I kind of sat there and talked about Lion and talked about some things I'd built. I'd been doing some work for Channel 4, which is another UK broadcaster, and uh, Dogs Trust, which is a large charity. i um, been doing subcontracting for other agencies and stuff. So I just kind of sat there and was like, yeah, I write JavaScript. So I built a nonlinear video editor for Channel 4. Does that count? You'd like drag and drop things onto a timeline? Um, and they're like, sure, yeah, cool, you're hired. So that's kind of how I ended up at the BBC. Um, I meant to be there for, you know, three to six months, maybe a year. And I was there just shy of 11 years. So I'm not sure if that went really well or really badly, kind of both. <laughs> um, well, um, you you went through, uh, you know, quickly uh, a kind of big part of your uh your early uh, life in 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 career, but uh, when you mentioned you were uh, doing your own uh, informal, uh, uh, I guess contract work with uh, 
on the for uh, web development um did had did accessibility uh come into your thinking at all at that at that Whoa. time when when did it when was it something that first uh resonated with you as something that you know that was out there so i kind of have uh, an interesting mix of impairments myself so i'm autistic um, I also have a spinal cord injury, hence the big blue chair with the harness so I don't fall out sideways, which is part of what makes the bike riding pretty crazy, but I'll, I'll come on to that in a bit. Um, and I was kind of building websites and building things, but I'm an, I'm, I'm, I'm an AT user myself. So I ended up building things like my own screen reading tools and my own page comprehension tools and bits of software where, because I was homeless, um, I had a, a I was basically building websites in like the library and stuff like that. And I had this Nokia E61 smartphone. Um, at the time, I also didn't have much speech. So it was how I communicated with everybody by typing on it and then showing it to them. It's just before I kind of got proper assistive communication tools. And um, on that Nokia E61, it had an unlimited amount of uh, MSN network, uh, MSN messenger. So I could send unlimited numbers of MSN messages, but every other data service was, was expensive and I couldn't afford it. So I built a tool that analyzed web pages, turned them into a series of MSM messages and then sent them to me. Um, and I kind of built a, a basic screen reader so I could navigate web pages remotely using messages from my phone. Um, and I found that a much more effective way to interact with the web. Um, so I guess a lot of it was, I didn't know accessibility was special. It's just part of building things. I've always kind of been on the progressive enhancement of kind of that side of things. So I didn't really know it was a specialism until um, one day in probably about 2008, something like that. Um, I'd got a free ticket to go to a, a conference. Um, I think it was the Future of Web Design or something. Um, I think they used to be called Cassonified, the company who did them. They'd given me this free ticket. I'd done some writing, I think, for .NET Mag about something like that. I can't remember. And um, I kind of got lost and was wandering around, and I found this really nice quiet room. And I really liked it because there was hundreds of people upstairs, not my bag, like, uh, hide, hide, hide. Um, and I got chatting to a lovely chap. Um, who, and it turns out I'd walked into the speaker's lounge and it was Bruce Lawson. And I got chatting to Bruce and talking about what I do. And he kind of picked up that I was quite haughty. Um, I had a big fluffy lion with me. And um, yeah, I got to know Bruce Lawson and, and he was a, a good influence and kind of introduced me to the idea that accessibility is a thing. Um, and that I'd actually built an accessibility tool and I didn't really understand it. Uh, and then that kind of led to uh, meeting Henny Swan because they both worked at Opera at the time. Um, and then with that also meeting um, uh, Lady Moonan and lots of other people such as, such as Ian Pouncey. So the other time that I'd been to London before Ian collected me off the train to go for my interview was to actually do a, a talk about um, using the web and being autistic for Opera. Uh, I think it was called Accessibility Next and it was the cognitive accessibility version. So. From the point where I went from kind of being, I don't know, how do you put it, self-employed, you know, making websites for friends, family, small businesses, um, and the occasional piece of big subcontracting, um, to the point where my career started properly when I was about 20, already, you know, 12 years into doing this, um, I actually started to understand that a large part of what I did was called accessibility. I didn't really know that. It was just building things properly. Um, and then kind of when I got into the BBC, I started as a, a prototyper. Um, and I, I had this fantastic year and a half um, sat next to a, a wonderful designer called uh, Sasha. 
um, and we prototyped out this thing and it was for a certain radio network and we showed it to them and we built all the accessibility in because you're the BBC, of course you do that. Um, I got to know Ian and Henny and the accessibility team a bit and got to meet Gareth Ford-Williams, uh, who's the head of accessibility for the BBC. Uh, we used to sit on top of Television Centre. So in Television Centre, there, there was a, a staff bar right on the top and you had a wonderful view of the sky, so we'd go stargazing. And um, one of my favourite little quirks of that building is it's a, a million square foot building, but they had nowhere to store the chips in the cafe. So they had little wooden sheds on the roof full of freezers full of chips, which is the most BBC solution to anything ever. Just put a shed on the roof, it's fine. Nobody can see it. So, yeah, so I met Gareth and Ian and the rest of the accessibility team that way. We did this prototype and the, the radio network we, we built it for really didn't like it. Um, however, all the other radio networks went, ooh, we like. Um, and I kind of got to a, a chat with, uh, after this, I kind of, I was, I was coming up to the end of my time there, you know, I was kind of looking ready to move on. And um, I kind of got called into a meeting with, you know, the head of radio, um, Andrew. And um, I kind of thought I was fired. I wasn't sure whether I was fired or not. And he was like, so this prototype, how hard would it be to turn into the real thing? And I was like, um, I built it as if it was the real thing because I don't actually know how not to. So I don't know, some theming, some a bit of testing, probably quite slow, need speeding up. How about that? So I then kind of went from being like just a regular dev on the team to being made a senior developer. And I basically became like the informal front end lead for what became iPlayer Radio, which anybody in the UK will know is like the main radio platform in the UK on, on the website of it. So I did that for a couple of years um, and stayed as a senior in that team. Um, and then Ian, who was a senior in the platform engineering team, um, moved on to the accessibility team to join Gareth as uh, like an accessibility specialist. Um, and in order for him to move on, he needed to backfill his role in the platform engineering team. So I, I followed him in, essentially. He, he, uh, I backfilled for him when he left for the accessibility team. I then did platform engineering for about two years. Um, and then Henny left the BBC. And when Henny left, it left a headcount in the accessibility team. So I followed Ian for a second time uh, and joined the accessibility team working with Gareth. And that was probably about seven years ago. So, yeah, it's, that's, that's how I kind of got from being a, a developer to a, kind of like a senior developer and then finally into a dedicated accessibility role. And then in the last seven years, my role has changed many times. It's gone through many iterations, but that's kind of a bit more of a story for later. Well, uh, I mean, you've been through uh, so many challenges. Thanks for uh, sharing the, uh, you know, how things, you know, were with uh, uh, with your uh, spinal injury. And I'm, I'm interested in the uh, in, in the bike part of it maybe we could tack that on to the end but then you also mentioned that you'd given uh, a, a a talk or written a paper about autism with respect to I think the opera browser maybe if you could talk a little bit about you know the nature of that and what you uh what you wrote what was it a, a paper or a presentation, yeah, a presentation. Uh, what was the what was the theme of that and what what did you uh help other people to understand so I was all of about 17 or 18, something like that. Um, at the time, um, I just got to living in supported living. So I'd been homeless for a while, then living in a shelter, then living in supported living. And um, we had to do all sorts of paperwork in order for me to go to London. It was hilarious. It went from when I was homeless, nobody giving a damn, to when I'm in supported living, mountains of paperwork to do anything. It was kind of ironic. 
um so yeah so Henny Swan and and the people at Opera arranged for me to come up to London and I did a presentation just talking about how I use the web what things work for me what things don't work for me um I'm sure I probably have the copy of the slides around somewhere um and it's kind of the the first time I talked about cognitive accessibility but at the time it was just how I use the internet I didn't know that it was a specific thing I I'd never watched somebody else use the internet so I didn't know that what I was doing was different if that makes any sense nobody like taps you on the shoulder and goes by the way most people don't do that you know so I'd use the keyboard I'd mix keyboard and mouse I would you know um, make things really big just to make all the adverts go away and all sorts of stuff I didn't know that that, that wasn't how everybody did it so I kind of talked about that and um and that's what I was what blimey 15 years ago and I've been doing you know 20 to 40 presentations a year since so that was kind of my first kind of big public presentation about kind of web development stuff um and then I've just kind of gone from there you know talk to talk to event to event um that, I suppose that that train of stuff uh eventually kind of reached its its climax so to speak um at CSUN in 2017 where um, I went across with the BBC, so Gareth Ford-Williams pops up, the head of accessibility for the BBC. Um, I'd never flown, I'd never been on a plane, I'd never been to the US. I didn't have any speech most of the time. And Gareth was like, you should do a presentation in America. I'm sure that's totally doable. And he, he worked it out. He worked out how to get me and Lion and uh, Mike, who's a wiki, the friend who I do the financial crime software with now, funnily enough, um, all the way across to the US to go and do this presentation at CSUN. Uh, about cognitive accessibility one-on-one. -on -one. So I'd kind of come up with this model of describing how I pro process things from a cognitive accessibility perspective. So I break it down into um, receiving, processing, and acting on information. So being able to receive information uh, is being able to perceive it, so color contrast, stuff like that. Uh, and then being able to identify the actions that are possible or the affordances. And then processing the information is like filtering and deciding. So filtering out all the information I don't want all the buttons I don't want to press, all the things I'm not going to do to hone in very slowly on the thing that I am going to do. Um, so that's quite your filtering and deciding. Uh, and then your acting is planning and doing. So how do I actually do the thing I've decided to do? Do I click a thing? Do I pull a thing? Do I drag a thing, et cetera? Uh, and then doing is the ability to actually do that without dropping something or clicking the wrong thing or, or whatnot. So I kind of started talking about that model and um, that kind of took off really big. So I went back to see some three years I think in a row which was kind of through till I think it was 2016 17 and 2018 might have been 2019 I think I took a year off in the middle um with different versions of that cognitive accessibility talk um and then went to many of the large organizations and did the same talk um and then kind of kind of grew from there it's also when I got involved in the W3C cognitive task force um, uh, so I guess that's actually one of the things I'm doing right now that I kind of forgot about. I'm one of the co-chairs of the cognitive community group. <laughs> oh yeah, about that, that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I spend yeah, like, that, that that's thing one I spend two, two days a month doing. Yeah, that's yeah, you, yeah that. you have an amazing uh, amount of things in there that we have to keep uh, uh, <laughs> catching up on. Uh, you know, just, just going back again a little bit, uh, um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, starting out, you... you it, the way you were doing things was just the way that you'd been doing things and you weren't aware that it was necessarily different or other people had those challenges. But I mean, as, as you started doing all these presentations, you must've started realizing that there were 
there's so many people with similar uh, challenges that needed to be able to solve those, uh, you know, as you went along. Yeah, um, that that was a big part of it. Was that I'd, I'd say that so if I pick up the story where I started with the accessibility team, there were there was kind of three big changes at that time. The first change was it it was the first time where I'd worked on a team where I wasn't trying to not be autistic. If that makes any sense. So up until the age of about twenty five, I would say that I was a person with autism. There is there is me and the autism, and they're separate. But that didn't really work very well because fundamentally I'm. I'm autistic. It's part of me. It's, it's it's the same as like my hair color or my height or my gender or sexuality or whatever. It's an ingrained part of me. And I got all the way to 25. Um, and I, I basically had really bad burnout. So <laughs> Gareth had hired me into the accessibility team. And about six months later, um, I almost dropped out of gallstones. So I had this this operation that was a bit last minute after I had this these big gallstones. Um, and after that operation, the anesthetic hadn't gone right or something had gone wrong. So actually, I lost my speech again for about 18 months. So my first kind of two years with the accessibility team as an accessibility specialist uh, were mostly spent um, non-speaking or non-verbal without speech. And rather than being excluded or or seeing myself as, as damaged or broken, we understood that this was just something I was going through. And it was the environment that needed to change to account for to, to remove the barriers. So a good example would be um, we used to have these team meetings where we'd all get on Skype and um everybody would talk and then they go hey jamie what do you think and i'd be typing something out and it was the most frustrating thing i'd ever done because i was out of sync with everything else and i kind of explained this to the team kind of going this doesn't flow this is driving me crazy um so we ended up all moving to slack because that way we're all using the same communication channel we're all we're, we're all kind of more equal in terms of communication and then the communication flows better and there's less misunderstandings and everything goes quicker so it's kind of slowing down to go fast kind of um it's kind of this maxim of um uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast so we slowed down the communication so we all had an equal playing field and then it all flowed much better um and then yeah it took a long time for my speech to come back and a lot of therapy and tools and aac um so i kind of had that kind of at the start of it and it was it was gareth ford williams thing of kind of explaining the social model to me going hey actually it's not that the autism is the disability. You know, the autism is your impairment. It's describing something about you. But it's the environment that contains all the barriers. And it's the barriers that actually disable you. So at the time I was doing things like I've had to go up to, to Salford, which is up in Manchester, about 200 miles away. Um, I'd jump on the train by myself and get there and be completely broken. Like I would arrive in like survival mode. <laughs> I have made it, you know, just about alive. I haven't got hit by a train or a car but I'm completely useless for two days because I'm just so overwhelmed by it. And Gareth was one of the person who started going, well, maybe we can get you some support with that. Or you could travel up with somebody else and start to explore that. So Gareth had this really large role in my life, uh, Gareth Ford Williams, where he was kind of helping me learn about myself. And as I learned that, I became more able to describe the barriers that I faced to others, which is kind of what led to that accessibility talk at, at CSUN. Um, I wrote it very quickly after we arrived in the US because I'd actually forgotten I was doing it. I had three scheduled all in the same day. And this one was in the middle of the day. And I, I basically finished it, sat on the loo between the other two talks. <laughs> you know, typical CSUN style, last minute. But it went really well. And all I was doing was talking about my experiences. Um, and then kind of from there, kind of understanding that I'm not the only people who, uh, I'm not the only person who has these barriers, but the barriers have names, um, has become really useful. So that was kind of like the first two years when I was with the accessibility team. 
Um, and then the next five kind of get even more crazy. But um, yeah, for those two years, I'm basically accessibility specialist. So I'm helping people with testing things, giving advice, um, doing little bits of research and prototyping. And um, of course, that one of the big ones was uh, finishing the BBC's mobile accessibility guidelines, um, partly because of me being in the team and partly because of Gareth and, and everybody else. Um, those guidelines were some of the first to include cognitive accessibility because we had first-hand experience of it in the team. So we could put those cognitive accessibility examples into the BBC's guidelines from the start. The BBC doesn't follow WCAG. They, due to some interesting legal stuff, we have to have our own thing that we look after and we control. So we, we were using the, the, the BBC access, uh, mobile accessibility guidelines, which were mostly written by Ian Pouncey and Henny Swan with lots of other people helping. Um, so that was kind of one of the first times that the one of the first times that the barriers that I faced became something I could talk about in a useful way. And I could see that some of the challenges I had could also become a way to help others. Um, and that was kind of the end. Of, that was kind of like the first two years of my time within the accessibility team. Well, the, um, so, so you just mentioned, uh, you know, working on uh the uh, standards uh, and uh, models for cog uh, supporting cognitive disability. And th that's always to me been the, the one the one disability that has gotten the least amount of uh, attention or maybe progress in the digital accessibility world. I think maybe because it it's a really difficult problem to figure out how to address and 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 solve and support, but uh, I mean, what are what are your thoughts on on that? How do you kind of look at cognitive disabilities and accessibility, and and what do you see as a you know a good path forward for the profession to take? That's a big question. Um, I think we have a problem with abstraction, so when we think about cognitive stuff and we think about cognitive disabilities or cognitive impairments, it's a bit more complicated than that. So let's roll back a step, right? What's a disability and what isn't? Well, in the UK, disability is defined by two things, which is first of all, is that it has a substantial impact on your day-to-day -day living and that it lasts more than 12 months. You'll notice that nothing in there says anything about a diagnosis or a doctor even. It just says that it has a substantial impact on your life and it lasts more than 12 months. So if we um, took everybody in England and we flooded England to 20 feet and everybody had to swim everywhere and they could no longer do things because they couldn't swim well enough, well, now they've got a swimming disability because it's contextual, it's the environment. So when we say cognitive impairment, cognitive disability, what we're really saying is a, a bell curve. But there is a, a bell distribution of ability on something and, you know, 90% of people are between, you know, this middle part of the graph. But the graph goes off to the far sides. Now, we have come to the point of judging that as an impairment or, or a disability, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So one of the models that I kind of came to and have, have really learned to, to find very useful is the concept of neurodiversity. So say, for example, me, the, the medical words are autistic and ADHD. Somebody could say that I'm inattentive. I would say no. I would say that most barriers don't support my ability to tunnel and maintain focus. Most environments contain too many barriers. When, you know, somebody might say that autistic people are hypersensitive to sound. I would say no, I'm sensitive to sound, but that's because the, the environment is badly designed for sound. 
what happens is when we start going down that medical path, the DSMV path, we're actually making political decisions. So think of the DSMV as an artifact of a bunch of political arguing. It's not actually, so DSMV is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual. It's the thing that says what all the disorders are. That's not actually very useful. Most of it is political. Most of it is about funding. Most of it is about insurance codes. It's not actually an abject description of reality and the challenges that people face. And that's kind of really important. That what the diagnostic label says doesn't really tell us much about the needs of the person, right? So for me, when I think about cognitive, I'm not thinking about the names of disorders. I'm not thinking about the medical model. I'm thinking about the social model and the nature of the barriers. So what are the most common barriers for people with a, with, with a cognitive difference? Or what are the most common barriers for people? You know, the, the, when, when we try and think of cognitive accessibility as the disabled people and the not disabled people, we're missing out on people who are tired. You know, everybody has this changing ability. Um, one of the models that we use is this um, description of ability, capability, and capacity. So ability is the list of everything you can do, which for me includes flying a small aircraft. Capability is all the things you can do today. And capacity is how many of those things can you do today? So I might be able to do 100 things. I might be capable of doing, I don't know, five of those things today, but I might only have the capacity to do two of them. Um, sometimes you'll hear, hear that referred to as energy accounting or spoons. So if you ever come across spoons or that sort of thing, that's what it's referring to as energy and capacity. You can take somebody who has no cognitive disability, get them tired enough, and they will have cognitive disability suddenly. It's not that they've changed. It's that the environment has changed. The situation has changed. They're no longer as capable as they were before. They've still got the ability, but they currently don't have enough capacity to use what they're, to do what they're capable of. Does that make sense? That people exist on this constantly changing spectrum of ability and trying to draw a hard line and say, this is the disabled point and this isn't, that's not a useful thing to be doing. Um, instead to looking at it and going, people vary, but generally speaking, the, the barriers are similar. They are things like memory. They are things like um, recognition. They are things like language processing and speech. Everybody can have these problems at different times. And then what we need to do is we need to make sure that when we build things, we don't build things in a way that they include barriers relating to that sort of thing. Um, and this kind of focus on barriers, not on diagnosis, not on WCAG, but where are the barriers within the thing has kind of become the, the model that we used at the BBC, which also led to some of the research I did about VR and, and XR and that sort of thing. So I guess in a nutshell, cognitive accessibility and usability are two sides of the same coin. They blend together and it's really a political decision about what's usability and what's accessibility. Um, and I, I generally come to this, this, this discussion by going, who's deciding where that line is? If the deciding of that line is the DSMV and what's a medical diagnosis, well, that's basically driven by politics and money in the insurance industry. It's, it's not actually based on what works for people. Or do we define that line based on our own communities and experiences and the audiences that we serve? So that's kind of the way I think about it. The more we can understand about the audience and the barriers that the audience face, uh, the more we can do to resolve those barriers. So one of the phrases I sometimes use is that we encode the assumptions we make about others into the things we build in the form of barriers. So when I assume that everybody can remember 20 things and I just have that assumption in my head and I build my to-do list manager, I don't challenge myself to go, actually, how about people who can remember five things or people who can remember 30 things? So those assumptions that we make about the ability of others for speech, language, memory, um, 
all sorts of different things like that. Um, we, we, we create barriers in what we do because we encode those assumptions into what we do. Now we can always think about really clever solutions. So we can have screen readers and specialist overlays and all sorts of stuff, but actually it's more effective to make better assumptions at the start. So a lot of what I do is talking to people about what they're doing and the assumptions they've made and helping them make better assumptions. Um, it's why I kind of say to people that I, I have a, an assumptions and barriers focused model of accessibility. It's not about WCAG, it's not about compliance. It's about talking to a team and going, who are you going to exclude today? Who are you, who are you happy to exclude? And when I say that to people, people go, whoa, whoa, we can't exclude anyone. They'll be like, okay, so does the BBC News homepage have to work for toddlers? No, it's okay to exclude users under five? Great, write it down. Nothing is for everyone. But even if you take a completely blank web page and you write 10 words on it, it's going to exclude someone. So owning that and making it deliberate and then thinking about who you're excluding and why you're excluding them and then making sure you don't exclude anyone else is kind of the art of accessibility. It's not about trying to include everyone. It's about agreeing who you're going to exclude and then holding yourself to that line and making sure you don't exclude anyone else. Does that help? That's a very long wobbly explanation of Jamie's philosophy of accessibility, really. Well, I, I, you, it, it was extremely helpful. And so you gave me a lot to think about myself, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, continuing as you, you know, referenced barriers and, and that's, you know, that's just a whole thing I have to, uh, uh, take some time myself to to think about it in a different way, and so I really appreciate uh, that uh, you know your you know expression of that because it, it's very helpful, and I think it it's uh, will be helpful to a lot of other people that that listen to this uh, uh, this episode, um, and and I appreciate uh, you know your 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 live life expression and, and really uh, helps me, uh, you know, get a greater understanding for, uh, yeah, for uh, those particular challenges. Can I give you three examples of, of barriers and how we came to face them and, and rethink life to overcome them? Um, I think it might be useful. They're examples from my own life. So on the story, we're up to about five years ago, right? I'm back to being verbal. And um, I moved my role from being a, uh, a senior accessibility specialist to a senior research engineer. And at that time, I started being more involved in BBC's research. So user testing, user research, R&D, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I was still kind of splitting my time half and half between that and supporting other members of the team on kind of accessibility stuff within the products. So news, iPlayer, weather, all that sort of stuff. And um, I remember having a conversation with Gareth probably about three years ago. Um, where I basically said to him, Gareth, I'm really annoyed. Like these people, they published a bunch of accessibility guidelines for VR. They're all speculation. There's no data. I don't know what the barriers they're solving are. They're all, it's a list of solutions, but I don't know the problem. Can I do a thing? And he basically went, yeah, sure. Let me know what it is you want to do. And I was like, well, if I like made a VR thing and then went to lots of places with lots of people, and just wrote down what didn't work, what the barriers were. And then we made a really big list of them. And then we kind of sorted them all out and grouped them. We could describe the problems with VR, which need solutions rather than the solution. And maybe when we do that, we can design out the problems in the first place. So then we don't need the clever solution. Gareth basically went, yeah, that sounds good. So uh, that year, rather than buy me a, you know, a Mac for my, you know, three yearly 
BBC laptop upgrade. We got a little VR machine. And I, I taught myself how to build a VR environment pretty much over a weekend. It was pretty much come in on Tuesday. I think I think it was a long weekend. And I came in on the Tuesday and I was like, ta-da, Gareth, I've got VR now. It was like, when did you last sleep? It's like, mm, Thursday? I think I've been awake about 60, 40 to 60 hours. I, I fell asleep a little bit in the middle. I can't remember when. And he was like, that's great, Jamie. Go home and get some sleep. Um, but we had this VR environment. It's a, a model of a school library. And we started playing with it. We started taking it places. So we took it to um, special schools because I know lots of different people who run special schools. We took it to community centers and care homes. And we worked with uh, 107 users. Well, we worked with 107 users, but we're pretty sure some of them were the same users twice. Um, because of the way we collected the data, we can't actually rule out the duplicates, which is kind of funny. Um, it's almost like someone turned up with a mustache and was like, yes, I'm definitely somebody different. Please, can I have another go? And, um, you know, I couldn't tell them all apart. So I said, yeah, sure, jump on in. Um, and from that, we observed something like 1,700 barriers, so like 1,700 barriers, which we then focused down and processed, removed all the duplicates, um, and got down to about 25 common barriers grouped by impairment. Um, and that became the BBC's VR, uh, BBC's XR um, barriers research, uh, which was kind of the last, it took us three years, but it was kind of like the last big thing I delivered before I left the BBC. Um, so that was taking that barriers approach to a new piece of technology and going, what are the barriers involved in this? The barriers are things like expectations, comprehension, wayfinding, um, controls, multiple input, all that sort of stuff. If you Google BBC XR barriers research, it'll all come up. Um, but that was taking that barriers approach. Now, at the same time, some big changes happened in my life. So as I said, I, I kind of had speech and didn't have speech. And I've been trying to learn in, to live independently for literally 15 years. It's always been a struggle. I get very muddled. I have trouble keeping up. And I've always had kind of support at home helping me to, to stay safe. And the way that the approach that we took was this idea of understanding a barrier and then finding a tool. So uh, a great example being I don't really use open cups. I just use sippy cups. Um, I don't actually have one with me right now. This is one of the rare occasions I actually have a bottle of water with a screw top. And you'll notice that every time I take a sip, I'm screwing the top back on because I'm going to spin it. I always do. So we started We started with this idea of I've got 10 spoons a day. How do I make the most of it? Well, every little optimization, having sippy cups rather than using, you know, open top containers, that saves me a bit. The noise of, um, you know, metal cutlery on plates, it, it's really painful. So I don't have any china plates. So the noise doesn't matter. You know, all of these little things, but they're each optimizations that reduced the barriers in my life and enabled me to live more independently and to, and to start to thrive. So that kind of takes us up to, I'd say, about a year and a half ago, uh, which is when my life got really interesting. But uh, I think I'll stop for now and bounce back to you and then we can finish and I can tell you the last 18 months. Well, I... This is this has been a uh, this has been a good journey, um, and uh, it's uh, it sounds like uh, then there were uh, there's uh, some other activities that uh, took place after the BBC um, that so, were uh, that you wanted to chat about. So that happened while I was at the BBC. So eighteen months ago um in february 2021 um i woke up one day in the most amount of pain that i've ever been in there is i don't have the words to describe the amount of pain i was in it was lying on the floor screaming and screaming and screaming um the friends who took me to hospital basically said they never heard a person make those noises before and i hope they never do again 
And um, long story short, um, I'd had an infection in my kidneys that got into my blood and caused sepsis. And we think, we don't entirely know for sure, um, that whilst that had happened, the, the nerves that go down to my legs were crushed. So at the bottom of your spinal cord, you've got a thing called the cord cleaner. Um, it's like a horse-shaped bunch of nerves. Um, and mine had got damaged. So it's something called cordoraquina syndrome, which is a type of spinal cord injury. So I went from literally one day of riding 40 kilometers and doing my job and, you know, traveling the country, doing talks and working with BBC teams and stuff to not being able to stand and not being able to walk and not being able to do a lot of things I used to do. I basically spent three months lying down. Um, and that was probably one of the hardest moments of my life when suddenly everything changed. And when we speak to the doctors, they didn't really know what was what the answer was. They're like, well, cordoraquina syndrome, you know, it's got lots of different causes. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, one doctor helpfully popped up and like, oh, no, no, we will know the cause. When we autopsy you, we'll know exactly what the cause was, whether it was infectious or not. And I was like, oh, thanks. That's not very useful. So we took that barriers model again and we just said, OK, I can't move much. What's important to me? Well, OK, I need a lie flat, but. I can have a day bed and a night bed. So I have a day night cycle again. How do I look after the pain? Well, I need to sit in certain ways. I need to learn what my body can and can't do. So we basically completely redesigned my flat and my life, taking this barriers led approach, working out where the barriers were and what we could do about them. Now, at the same time, having been a, a mountain biker for 20 years, the biggest harm to my mental health, the biggest grief was either a forced change of identity. So for example, not being a mountain biker anymore, um, and the loss of control that I had over my life because I, you know, I couldn't get to the lounge. I couldn't get to the bathroom, let alone, you know, anything else. I had to trust my friends and the people doing my support. So over time, you know, I had these these first three months and kind of two things happened. The first one is that my team at the BBC were just amazing. It wasn't even like Jamie's on sick leave. No, we're an accessibility team and I needed accessibility help. They were there for every single conversation, working out how to do things. And Gareth and Becky and Charlie um, and Emma and Mick Math, they're all amazing people. Um, and they've all now actually left the BBC thinking of it. Um, and we worked it through and we kind of understood bit by bit. And, for, you know, over those first three months, I spoke to every adaptive cycling company I could find in the UK uh, until I eventually got myself onto like a recumbent tricycle. And from the recumbent trike, we proved that I could still pedal. I just couldn't hold my body weight up whilst I did it. Um, we then found, you know, different physios and all sorts of stuff. And we found that I had a strong standing position, couldn't walk much, but I could stand up. Um, we also found that I couldn't sit up straight. So you might notice I'm in a big blue chair with a big strap. I don't, I don't have much strength side to side anymore. So if I don't do the straps up and I'm not careful, I just kind of fall sideways. It also really hurts my sides. Um, and I can't feel my feet and my legs are a bit rubbish and that sort of stuff. But I had this strong standing position. So we proved that I could sort of pedal using the recumbent tricycle. We called it the Dakar deck chair because it's like a deck chair with big tires on it for going down mountains. Um, and then we built a whole series of prototype bikes that I could basically stand on top of. So if you imagine standing with your fat fleet on the floor and your hands flat on the wall, um, that's a strong position for me. I can do that. So we built a bike that could fit underneath me when I did that. Um, and it ended up being four different prototypes um, before we went to one of the bike manufacturers. Um, and then we custom built that little creation over in the corner. Um, and that's how I go mountain biking. The, if, if I rolled it out and you looked at it, you'd go, looks like a bike that's been kind of squished. And that's what we did. The, you know, the front end is really, really high. The pedals are really, really low and it's got a motor. 
So I can sit on it and twiddle my legs and the motor does all the pedaling for me, get to the top, stand up in my strong position and roll down the other side. Um, it's got, you know, 160 mil, you know, six inches of suspension travel both ends so I could take out all the bumps and away I go. So within, I think it was about four months of my injury, uh, we proved that I could roll down a hill on a bike. Uh, and then about nine months after my injury, we'd finished the, the initial build of that bike. And it's got like a prototype that's constantly developing. So I get this slightly weird experience of kind of, um, I'm a research engineer, right? And Gareth turned around and said, when you when I had my injury, it's like, well, you're a research engineer. You're now your own topic. You know, you need to research your own barriers and fix those. And, and the bike is, is a good example of that. So is this chair and all the other different tools that we found and developed. Um, another example would be uh, rather than have a wheelchair, I have a big buggy um, because the wheelchairs that can hold me in the right position are basically horrible. You sit in them, you can't see anything. You're reclined all the way back. You feel extremely vulnerable. It's a horrible feeling. But if you're in a buggy, you're down, protected, nice and low. You've got a canopy over you. You know, it's, it's nice and comfortable. So we just looked at the barriers. And then each time we had a barrier, we iterated on it, found a solution and then just kind of improved over time. Um, so the other thing that I do is I monologue and I'm pretty sure that was a monologue. So uh, there you go. There, there's another like huge heap of Jamie life stuff. Well, uh, Jamie, it's been a, a pleasure uh, talking with you about this. And uh, I, I, I learned a lot. I uh, appreciate hearing your story and uh, hopefully we'll meet at CSUN or another event at some point. Sure. Woo, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design, we can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.